0: Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm your host, Mike Allen. Connecticut's got 13 state prisons right now, but back in the 1700s, when Connecticut was still a colony and not even a state, it had just one prison, Newgate. In fact, it was the only prison in the brand new country. Well, when you hear the story of Newgate, its horrendous conditions and the types of crimes that got you placed there... I think you're gonna be a little bit shocked. And here to tell us all about it is Morgan Bengel. She is the site administrator and the curator at the old Newgate prison, and she has some incredible stories to share. And now, Connecticut's Newgate prison, the first U.S. prison with dungeon-like conditions. The first time you visit Old Newgate Prison in East Granby, Connecticut, and if you haven't been there, I highly recommend that you go, you feel like you are in the middle of nowhere. Like many parts of Connecticut, absolutely beautiful. Great landscape, lots of hills, lots of trees, gorgeous vistas, but as you drive there, you see these dramatic sheer rock cliffs Well, that's the part of the state where the former copper mines were located. In fact, in an earlier episode of Amazing Tales, we did speak about the early days of mining in Connecticut. And Newgate Prison was, before it was a prison, a copper mine. Well, by using a mine with a deep shaft as a prison, it was felt that, well, it would be virtually impossible to escape. Prisoners would literally be held inside the earth to serve their sentences. It was the first prison in the United States opened in 1773 before the Revolutionary War began. In other words, Connecticut wasn't yet a state. It was still a colony. Well, the prison was opened for a little more than 50 years before it finally closed in 1827 when other more modern facilities were finally built to take its place. Well, this story is an amazing one and one which we hear from the site administrator and curator of Old Newgate Prison, Morgan Bengel. They call it Old New Gate. Fill me in on that and straighten me out. Where does that name come from?
1: Well, that's a great first question because the name actually comes from the infamous prison in London, an early, I think, 1500 prison that was called Newgate. And so like many of our towns here in New England, they were naming it off of something that came from England and had some precedence. They were hoping to elicit fear or, or something of that nature, naming it after Newgate. It gets the old Newgate as a tourist attraction.
0: Now, when you showed me around the prison when I came up for that visit, The fear factor, You know, I tried to put myself in the mindset of somebody who was going into prison in the copper mine. Do your best to explain what that experience would be like for somebody who's never been there.
1: Back when it opened 1773, the men who were incarcerated initially were let down a 35-foot shaft. There was a ladder. We have accounts that say the ladder kind of stopped a few feet before you hit the ground. So that last part was kind of a fall, if you will, they were always handcuffed and shackled climbing down that 35-foot ladder and then entered into this, what many of them men referred to as a dungeon in complete darkness. It's always 52 degrees. It would have been such at that time as well. It is very wet, particularly in the spring, and that would have been their conditions, just drop down into this this pit more or less with other men who they didn't know of various crimes and uh, status and background and expected to serve out their sentence there.
0: Now, we always love to think that we know our history very well and it's recorded somewhere. I was uh, not surprised to hear that when I was asking detailed questions about how they got their food and everything else, it's not necessarily all that clear.
1: As with many historic records, You have to read in between the lines. We have some accounts of the overseers. And when I refer to the overseers, that's the kind of the governing body who were reporting to the governor at the time. So the overseers are writing what the conditions are and what they're given for food. They might have been embellishing. It might not have been correct. It also varies years to year. This was initially pre-revolution, during the revolution, and post-revolution, so different forms of government. And then we have, uh, in particular to the food question, we have prisoners who are writing about their experience saying that they were starving. And we have archaeological evidence to date that justifies that.
0: Wow. Wow. When you talk about what they were doing down there, it was, at least at one point in time, still an active copper mine, and the idea was, we'll let the prisoners do some of the mining.
1: Exactly. So the idea was to, three reasons for opening the prison, securely confine these men, profitably employ them, and imprison in lieu of infamous punishment, which means moving away from those whippings and brandings, things like that. But the profitably employ, it seems that they intended for them to work the copper mine. That quickly fizzled out. We know that they hired professional miners in the very beginning to try to help them, but there's very little record of that. And we believe that if the professional miners prior to the prison had failed in makes sense that they also failed and giving them the tools to mine. And with a little workforce, there's only a few men incarcerated in the beginning. It just wasn't working out. So they quickly abandoned that notion and simply housed them in the copper mine.
0: When were they allowed, if at all, during the course of a given day to come up and see some sunshine?
1: Again, different eras, pre-revolution and during the revolution, it's our understanding that they didn't come up. They were down there. There was no buildings or walls or really even heavily guarded above ground. So we believe that they were simply housed and stayed down for the remaining of their sentence unless they escaped. Post-Revolution, we get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of the prison in its full operation. And the men were sleeping down below for 12 hours at a time or staying down there for 12 hours and then coming above ground for 12 hours and working in the workshops, nails, shoes, barrels, things that were then sold for profit to support the prison.
0: Morgan, when you talk about the evolution of the prison one of the things that I think, as you recounted the story to me, that caused some of these changes was the escapes, that they would come up out of the mineshaft and, and just run away, and eventually structures had to be built over the top of the mineshaft. Explain that whole cat and mouse game
1: really these escapes drive so much of the narrative. So from the first escape happened within 18 days, John Henson escaped by someone coming and letting down a rope. There was no walls. It was not heavily guarded And he managed his escape. Within a year, we see those overseers report to the government that your honors must have heard all of the prisoners have escaped. It was a handful of men at the time, but more or less they had failed and they were escaping. At that point, we see them implement new security measures (laughs) and fill in one of the shafts and build a guardhouse structure over the other shaft directly over top of it. So the only way in and out of the bind was entering through this guardhouse. They burn that down because <laughs> that was made out of wood. They reconstructed again a couple years and it's burned down once again. So this is really, you know, the three little pigs story to a T, and they then build it out of brick. And so that's 1791. That stone guardhouse, foundation still stands today. And again, just continuation of no barrier around the prison yard until they implement a picket fence, right after implementing that picket fence, let's see, 1781. A few months later the largest mass escape occurs with 28 men, primarily those who are loyal to the British crown. And it isn't until 1802 that we see the construction of what still exists Stone Stonewall.
0: This was the first state prison in the new United States. And as you've pointed out, it was even pre-revolutionary times. So this was really the guinea pig of prisons in the United States, which wasn't even the United States at that point in time. So, yeah, I guess they probably made a few mistakes along the way, but uh, I guess they were figuring it out too.
1: Exactly. So as a prison, 1773, into the revolution, as Connecticut gains its statehood, that's when Newgate is considered a state prison and how we recognize it as the first state prison. The trial and errors that come as a result are numerous, as we see with the escapes and the infrastructure Uh, using guards. And then as it transitions to using solitary cells, so what we envision as prison today, using solitary cells with one or two people in them, that was not the structure here. And even when they built more infrastructure and buildings, they had huge cells that 25 or 30 people would be in at a time. And that is ultimately one of the reasons why the prison closes is because other institutions were opening and they were using more of what we consider modern tactics with the solitary cells
0: over time if I have the numbers right Newgate housed or took care of 800 prisoners or so and there were some pretty big names at the time amongst them and, and one of them stands out I think amongst most which was uh, William Stewart the counterfeiter what can you tell me about him
1: yeah, William Stewart is interesting because he wrote an autobiography post his prison years, which is one of the best accounts we have of what prison was like from his perspective, again, uh, considering, you know, his biases and whatnot. He was a counterfeiter, and the stories that he tells his kind of cat and mouse game with the guard, the warden at the time, Elam Teller, are just very iconic and a great insight into what Newgate was, as well as his rationale and ideology on prison in general. He tells a lot of funny stories, but at the end of his report on Newgate, he states that, you know, nothing he did was ever as serious as what he committed at Newgate. He tried to construct an insurrection and escape, which failed, but he said that that was his most atrocious crime, and he was driven to that by the oppression that took place at Newgate.
0: Now, this may be urban legend, but I've heard that he also trained and schooled maybe some of the younger prisoners on the art of counterfeiting, if we can call it that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So he I'm not sure what he would claim, but he in his autobiography considers Newgate a school for rogues. And it's unclear whether he was contributing to that or if it was his critique of Newgate. He, He mentions that the school for rogue and wicked men are all housed together, hardened criminals and, and younger men isn't sustaining. So maybe he's eliciting some of the issues that were going on here in terms of class and age and crime, but that's a little unclear.
0: Talking about the prison population, one of the interesting discussions we had was what these people were in there for, at least at one point in time, and maybe for a long period of time, a lot of it was political prisoners. I was surprised to hear that.
1: Exactly. So initially, again, 1773, the major crimes that are being incarcerated here counterfeit, horse stealing, burglary are kind of the big ones. As we get into the revolution, there is a number of men who were incarcerated as loyalists or for aiding the enemy. There's a couple different terms, but basically, those who were supporting the British. And they didn't necessarily need to be prisoners of war or fighting in the war. There's actually a law that's enacted around that time stating that those who are again aiding the enemy are not considered prisoners of war they're simply traitors they're recognizing them as citizens in america and not english citizens so it's a really fraught time in america as we know through the revolution but looking at it from the flip side when america's fighting for their political freedom they're incarcerating people for their own political ideology it's just very interesting to look at
0: with most things in that time period, unfortunately, you think about male dominating the, the, the landscape uh, and just like the prison population, all male, except that you told me and I found this f- fascinating that I guess for the last few years that the prison was open, there were actually female prisoners there.
1: Yeah, there were females. There was four, potentially five, that one's a little up in the air, that were incarcerated here um, at the very end. When they built that cell block, they then admitted women, um, believing that they had a separate area to house them. They weren't incarcerating them in the copper mine with the men. Two were for burglary, I believe, one adultery and one murder. Adultery is another one of those crimes that's interesting to look at. Some of these sex crimes that were criminalized at the time are really fascinating to assess and and think about what we're criminalizing at the time.
0: Well, and the entire way that society deals with the whole issue of prison and what we're in there for. We're going to get to that in just a second. I want to talk about right now where the inmates went after Newgate was closed, and this was to the, the Weathersfield State Prison that was built, I guess, about 1827. And I was, I don't know what the right word is, I was shocked, I guess, to hear that they had to march the 125 shackled prisoners 20 miles from Granby to Wethersfield to go to the new prison. Is that true?
1: That's what we believe. That's what, you know, shows in our records. We definitely, myself, um, particularly need to dig a little bit more into the Wethersfield stuff. We kind of stop right when Newgate ends, just because there's so much to cover here. But yeah, our understanding is that they up and marched them to Wethersfield, to the new modern facility that they were then attempting
0: to use. Wow. And then in Wethersfield, of course, if my research is right, they did 55 hangings and the 18 electrocutions before they shut that down and went to other prisons in Connecticut. But let's let's talk about this whole issue of prison reform and why do we incarcerate people and, and what for and, you know, who are they? As you had mentioned, burglary, horse theft, uh, forgery, these were your know, political ideologies were all reasons to be incarcerated. You take a, a, an interest in this topic as well. And what have you kind of learned and what has changed your views on things since you've started working at Newgate?
1: This is the fun part. So Newgate, it's really interesting and important to look at crimes of the past and as it relates to the modern and to the future. So in thinking about prison, um, you have to think about the crimes that elicit people being incarcerated. And again, like I've mentioned before, what we're choosing to criminalize and why previous examples being those who were loyal to the British, adultery, um, some other sex crimes. And then, you know, even going as far as war on drugs currently, I think all of these things, whether you agree or disagree, need to have some thought into them. It is systems and systems of power that determine many of these laws and crimes, and the extent in which they're punished as well, which is where prison gets into play. So something that we're doing here at Newgate to play with some of these ideologies and encourage our visitors to think critically think about it, is we're incorporating people with lived experience, so those returning citizens, formerly incarcerated, as well as currently incarcerated men and women, through art programs and some other, we have a Hall of Change, which is eight formerly incarcerated men and women who are honored each year for their commitment to their communities, so these people bring a lived experience and are able to help us understand more of what it means to be incarcerated and better uh, justice to the history that happened here at Newgate.
0: As you and I had spoken about, the TV special Poldark is showing now with a lot of copper mining and, uh, and, and the first thing I thought of uh, after I left, you know, with the dark story, these mine shafts go to places where there's actually multiple entrances, but I guess you didn't have that situation in Newgate. In other words, it was a closed loop system.
1: Yeah, it does appear that way. The mining stuff is so, so we're always looking at our landscape and trying to figure out what it's telling us and and what happened during the different eras. So Newgate is so unique because, because of the mine. It has lasted and hasn't been turned into a development like many other historic sites or what have you. So the copper mine has really been such an appeal for such a long time. That being said, it's a little hard to tell. It was a colonial copper mine, 1707, but then they mined again in the 1830s when the prison closed. So it's a little hard to tell when you're down there It does seem like a closed loop. There are some drainage tunnels, but otherwise, that's our compromise.
0: The 13 state prisons that Connecticut has today are, of course, nothing like old Newgate. But the questions behind crime and punishment, incarceration and correctional facilities overall are just as real today as they were when Newgate opened 250 years ago. that wraps up this episode of amazing tales from off and on connecticut's beaten path you know in doing research for this episode i learned that the state of texas has the most prisons 313 that's 110 percent more facilities for holding prisoners than they have facilities for higher education well if you like the show make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and this way you'll know when the next episode is coming around Tell your family, friends, and colleagues and have them sign on too. Also, I do presentations on the topics I discuss here on Amazing Tales. I do in-person talks and Zoom talks and I'd be happy to discuss an appearance at your group. If you're interested, just email me at amazingtalesct at gmail.com. That's amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy.